Investing in your business can be a wonderful way to grow wealth and live the life you want. That's what I'm doing. But investing in someone else's business can be even better. In my opinion, this is the best way to generate true passive income streams. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including the Global Cashflow Kings ETF, ticker symbol CFLO, which lets you invest in 200 companies with high levels of free cash flow, such as Visa and Costco, in one ETF. You can learn more about CFLO and the BetaShares fund range by visiting betashares.com.au. Read the PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Welcome to RASC's Australian Business Podcast, a series for entrepreneurs who dare to leave the world in a better place and get paid while we do it. This podcast will make you a better business owner, investor, founder, or entrepreneur. If you want to start a business or already have one, please subscribe to the series or share it with your friends, business partner, or colleagues. And don't forget to consider taking our free business course, which includes heaps of templates for creating business plans, HR documents, employee files, all of my software recommendations, and more. The course is completely free and available via the link in your podcast player. Okay, let's get into the episode. Andrew, thanks for taking some time to join me on the podcast. No worries, Owen. Good to be here. I really appreciate it. I know this is a little while in the works. I know you're a busy fella doing everything you're doing. But I thought a really interesting way to start off this chat, we're going to talk a lot about energy and a lot about marketing, electricity. We're going to talk about whole different types of stuff today. But I figured a really interesting way to start would be to ask you if there are any similarities between sailing and running a business, because I did read an article about you and sailing. So I would love to know if you have found any, I don't know, common takeaways from that. Uh, Yeah, sure. I think, well, I've been sailing for about 20 years now. I've been in business a little bit longer than that. Well, really, in terms of the sailing side of things, it's sort of my journey there has gone from fully crewed boats to more recently just two-handed. So me and one other fella on a boat, we just did the, the uh, Sydney to Hobart over Christmas, which was um, a new challenge for us. But, yeah, look, I think going back maybe to fully crewed is probably a little bit more aligned with the business world in that, you know, you've got maybe 10 or 12 people on a boat, all have got pretty defined roles. Key difference, I think, with sailing, though, is that they're all volunteers, especially in my world anyway. So you're not paying them. You have no formal power over them. You can't pay or anything like that. They're there because they want to be there and and you've got to lead them accordingly, right? So I think that gives you a good skill set to try and negotiate outcomes with people that you know aren't on the payroll. Certainly, the team selection is a big part of that and I think carry that through the business world pretty much definitely wherever I go. You know, it always starts with the sort of skills and the, the team fit and I think you've got to be increasingly able to sort of accommodate different types of people into teams but make sure that they all sort of want to do the you know the vision the goal you know with Hobart it's pretty easy people say I want to do a Hobart and then you say well that's good but um people have died you you sure you really want to do that and generally once they've committed to that the the rest of it's pretty easy it all sort of falls into line so the same rules apply work ethic behaviors team fit the ability to get on with others but there's just another element with starting where ultimately there's got to be that level of trust there and people's lives dependent on it. So I think in some ways that makes it easy to galvanise the team together because they're, they're all sort of self-elected that they want to go and do a Hobart together. In business, maybe it's a little bit harder to get that level of alignment with, you know, people's personal values and the work vision. But I think, again, 
with Nectar, if you're painting a very big goal, this is where we want to be in five years, that's sort of a little bit inspiring, then again, people do gravitate towards that and want to be part of something bigger. So there's an analogy there, I guess, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting because I know that culture is super important to you and that's probably why that, that was the genesis of that question. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But, you know, I've on our investing channels and you've spoken to investors who are sailors and, some at the Olympics <laughs> and that sort of stuff. And, and they say to me that there's so many similarities between like rough seas and investing and how you keep your head calm amongst all that. And one thing that I've always struggled with in my business is scale, right? And that comes down to like communication, clearly defined roles, united mission, so many different things. And I just don't think that I would have the ability to have a team on a boat in a high pressure environment and see them through. So don't get on a boat that I'm the skipper of. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Or just let me go out by myself is probably the key takeaway there. But mate, maybe you can give us a bit of background into who you are and Nectar because um, I was reading an article this morning that explained that you started, I believe it was in the 80s, don't correct me if I'm wrong here, in the 80s as a linesman. So you've kind of gone from like technically working on this stuff to now leading this business can you take us through that journey and kind of give us the 101 of what is Nectar and what have you created? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, you're right. So uh, about 37 years now. I've been working for about 37 years, so that's a bit scary. I grew up on a farm in, in Albury, near Albury, Donga, northeast Victoria, and that farm wasn't big enough to support our family. So my dad said to my brother and, and I, you better go out and find a real job. And uh, my brother got a job with the then State Electricity Commission as a linesman. And We'd sort of grew up thinking we'd work on the farm. I hadn't really thought about going to uni or anything like that. I went to the local tech college, you know, learned how to weld and, and so forth. So I followed my brother's footsteps and applied and got a job as an apprentice linesman, climbing poles, right? Um, it was a four-year apprenticeship. But I got about sort of two years into that and realised I wasn't very good at that. And the brother sort of said, mate, it's probably not for you. So I applied for another role, which was a technical officer role. And that, that was really cool because was back then they had a traineeship and they moved you all around Victoria. And so, you know, I was a young 70-year-old kid that had never really been outside of, you know, Albury Donga and suddenly going all around Victoria to different places and working. So that sort of got me away from the, the farm mindset and realised there was a world a bit bigger than, you know, Kewa Valley. Which is beautiful. Yeah, very beautiful, beautiful part of the world. So that sort of set me on my journey then into the, into the corporate world and um, really I had no ambition other than just to keep working hard and try and do the right thing and I guess... You know, if you stick at something long enough, opportunities come along and I've certainly been lucky enough to have a few of those opportunities and move away from climbing poles and technical work and uh, eventually I got into sales and marketing. And then from there, the whole energy industry transformed, you know, went from government ownership into privatised ownership and through that process, you know, over a number of years, I was lucky enough to sort of team up with some good people and we started to think about building our own energy retail business. So myself and I couple of the blokes started a business called Australian Power and Gas, one of the first really large independent energy retailers. We got up to sort of 400,000 customers and we, we sold that business back to AGL during that process. So, you know, again, I was sort of that all the time learning off peers and realised that you can't go out there and start businesses. But again, you know, what do you need to start a business? You need investors, you need equity, and there's a lot of scars, a lot of lessons along that journey. So sort of become a bit of a startup addict. I was jumping from one startup to the next and really enjoying the hustle. But, you know, with an older head, I guess I was addicted to the buzz. Not many of those businesses made a lot of cash. They spent a lot. So I think coming full circle back to Nectar and to your early comments about scale, I realised with this one, you, you, you do need to have 
serious backers if you're going to try and make a change in the energy market, the size of which we're trying to do with Nectar. Can you, maybe just to add context here, I have a bit of exposure to this because I've researched a lot of energy retailers as part of like my investing and and what have you, and also as part of the software that I look at in the energy market. But can you maybe just give us the nuts and bolts of like, how does it come together? Because I, for me, like if I'm thinking, if I'm listening to this conversation right now, maybe I'm thinking of starting a bakery, right? Like I know the equipment, I can see it, go in a baker's delight, I can see the stuff that I need. But I feel like, and I think hopefully you can tell us like how that is vastly different to how the energy market works and how you build a business around that. Yeah, no, I think people do a good job of complicating it for, for obvious reasons, but it's pretty simple. In the early days, you had big power stations, whether they'd be big coal-fired power stations or, or hydro water, water dams generating power or gas-fired turbines. They'd produce the energy. That energy would get transmitted along poles and wires. You know, the poles and wires you see in the street, those physical electrons get delivered to your house. So, you know, that's the physical flow of electricity from generation through to your, you know, through to your home. In the middle of that, the energy retailers, what they do is they basically pay all those different components along the way and then they add a margin and, and sell that electricity onto you. So they manage all that on your behalf and say, look, we'll go out and get a deal with a generator. We'll pay the poles and wires people. We'll have a customer service call centre there for you and here's your bill that adds all of that up and, and there's your bill. So that was the basic framework around which competition was made. They said, okay, now anyone can go out there and get a licence and if you can go and negotiate a deal with a generator and pay the, the poles and wires companies you know, what they're owed, then you can then go on and charge a customer for their electricity. And that was the start of competition almost globally, actually, in terms of energy markets. That was the genesis of that. So a very decentralised system, big generators, higher retailers supplying energy to customers. It's a very one-way relationship. And as we've seen in Australia over decades, every year costs go up. Because, you know, one July, I'll just send you another bill from your energy provider saying, costs have gone up, you know, here's your new bill. And then, you know, over the years, people sort of said, okay, I'm, I understand now I'm free to choose a different retailer, a bit like with Telstra, you know, with telecoms. And so people started down and said, oh, okay, it's easy to switch. You know, you know, switching became the thing. I can switch my telco provider. I can switch my healthcare. I can switch my bank. You know, I can switch my energy company. What have I got to do? You know, ring up someone or, you know, someone will or get online and see if I can get a better deal. And that's been the norm for probably the last, you know, 15 or so years. So talk to me a bit about Nectar and as far back as you want to go, maybe it's the origin story, or maybe it's like, I got a statistic that you grew the business to 10,000 customers within 10 months. Now I hear that and I'm like, incredible, but how do you market that? Do you have an incumbent audience? Did you connect with certain people? Did you find strategies that work for you better than the competition? Like that seems like a tremendous amount of growth straight out of the gates. Yeah, sure. Um, Well, maybe go back a bit. I think I guess Australian Power and Gas, I went on to a linter. I've worked in the energy company, you know, energy industry all my life, I guess. And it was clear to me that you know, the renewable sort of transformation was happening. And it was also clear to me that mums and dads were just getting so sick of the political rhetoric, getting caught. It doesn't matter what your political preference is. You just sit there every day on the news listening to constant debate and nothing gets done. And so, you know, there's a quite revolution going on behind the scenes there over the last decade where mums and dads were saying, I'm sick of this, I want to put solar panels on my roofs. And, you know, there was talk about solar and storage and there was talk about big scale batteries and you know, all this sort of stuff. So there's all this new stuff happening, but all you really heard about in the news was coal-fired power plants, price energy increases, gas prices are too high, and, that you know, the debate, you would have heard it, you know, just went on and on and on. So when I got approached by um, 
Hanwha. They're a South Korean conglomerate that are very big in manufacturing solar panels and um, large-scale solar farms and batteries. I was very interested in could a business like that that actually manufactures transform the way we think about energy companies in Australia. So done a lot of work on value chains and I realised then to really disrupt this market and be successful, previous businesses, we've just been a standalone energy retailer where we've had to go to one of the existing generators, buy the power, like I said, and sell it to a customer. I thought, well, what if we had a business that was big enough to build its own generation so it didn't have to go to a coal-fired power station, build its own solar farm, build its own large, big battery, offer mums and dads solar and battery on their rooftop and be an energy retailer that joins that together. And then we started to think about technology to do that. And, of course, that's a big investment. I always sort of say, if you think about global warming or climate change, they need global thinking and you need companies with balance sheets big enough to actually drive change. And you're seeing that play out with the Cannon Brooks and that of the world that's starting to make some fairly big plays to try and, and force change and make the industry different. And so what does that look like? In, in our world, you know, like we started with this concept of this new energy gen tailor, but essentially it's what I've mapped out as if you know, we, we build a big solar farm, we build some big batteries, we've got our own generation happening at a large scale, a utility scale, but we also provide mums and dads with the opportunity to put solar and battery on their roofs so they can produce their own power and also they can also sell that on to perhaps their neighbour, for example. Um, we connect that all up with our tech platform and suddenly you've got a very different business model where we're not beholden to anyone in the market anymore. We, with our customers, generate our own power and we facilitate the exchange of that power between ourselves and other customers. So through our technology, our app, where we'll be heading, for example, is, you know, the example I often use is you might be going away for the weekend, you've got solar and you've got a battery in your home, your battery's full, you might go to the Nectar app and just click a little button and say, look, feel free to sell the energy out of my battery while I'm away, just make sure the battery's charged up by the time we get home. And we'll, we'll sell that on through a, a you know, marketplace, think of a, like an Uber-type platform where your neighbour might say, hey, I see Owen's got some electricity available for a very cheap price. I'm happy to buy that and so we can facilitate through that through that network. So we use the term prosumer now, so you're you're becoming a producer and a consumer, right? It's a very different relationship with your energy company, like with Nectar. It's a two-way relationship. We're facilitating that exchange between you and ourselves or you and your neighbour. That's the, the vision. And, of course, every electron that we sort of provide, we're, we're matching that to the output of our solar farms or to the, the solar panels on your roof. Where we can't do that, we're offsetting all of that with carbon offsets to make sure that we're 100% carbon offset. So we're one of the few retailers that only sells, if you like, 100% carbon offset plans. So very, there's a very green angle to that, but we're also trying to do that cost effectively. And again, and to sort of get away from the rhetoric where if the sun don't shine and the wind don't blow, then renewables doesn't work. Well, that's just rubbish because that's what storage is about. And storage can come in many forms. The battery in your home, hydro is storage, those types of technologies are out there so that at night you are supplying your house from your battery as needed or from green energy off the grid from us if, if the battery can't you know, continue that on for the eight hours at night. So this message, the message that you just conveyed to me, it obviously seems to be working, right? Like Because you're getting a lot of customers. How do you get that message, like I say, other than through podcasts like this one, how do you get that message and communicate that to customers? And I guess my question is like, because you have analytics on this, like are they coming through word of mouth? Does a lot of come come through? Like, like how do you think about that? 
Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I think maybe just to be a little update, we're at 30,000 customers now. We're over over 30 million revenue and we really started marketing three years ago, just, just February, just before COVID, COVID sort of hit. And that was an interesting phase because we just launched the business in New South Wales and suddenly everyone was locking down their home. And traditionally, as many, well, anyone in Australia that's ever had someone knock on their door, they're either selling energy or they're selling, you know, telco or charities, right? So we've all, all had that experience. And that used to be the way because people didn't really think about their end. Um, someone knocking the door and so I can make it cheaper. Yeah, you're here. You might as well do it. That was kind of the end of the transaction. And we'd started the business model thinking that'll be the same as it's always been, knock on the door and offer them a green plan. You know, it'll be fine because it's hard to do that when you're, everyone's in lockdown. So pretty much a month after we started, we realised we, we had a big channel problem where we'd sort of, Built this business on the expectation we'd send out some some door knockers, and of course we couldn't do that. So the second part of that equation was, you know, how do we start moving to digital? Is digital work? We weren't too keen to get involved with price comparison websites. We thought that's a bit of a race to the bottom, and you know, you're sort of getting loyal to the website, not to the brand. Um, so we started to sort of then slowly think about our messaging, our branding, and then trying to get that out there through those digital channels like the Facebooks and. Yeah, native advertising, Google, that sort of stuff. That was pretty slow, to be honest. It took a little while for us to fine fine tune that, and we had to go out. Like like I mentioned, my vintage. I'm not a I'm not a digital guru. Getting back to that team selection, we we really need to go out and find some people who knew what they're doing. We've got some young kids in who know all about that stuff, and and lo and behold, you know, digital sales now through our website are about fifty percent of, of of where we get our customer growth from. A lot of it's word of mouth now because we are doing solar and battery installations. Mums and dads want. Maybe this, this is a bit of a question that's just out of the blue. Maybe you do or don't have an answer to this immediately, but when you rely on, say, like Sparkies or electricians to go out and install or when you, like, will repair and things like that, have you found, like, in your experience doing this through a few different lenses, have you found that there's, like, how important are incentives to contractors or, like, what difference do you get in terms of quality from contractors maybe versus employees? Like, have you made that distinction? Yeah, that's a really good question. We, we wrestle with it. We do both. We've got a team of in-house engineers now that are doing the designs. We have uh, internal sales team, external sales team. We have installers that are partnered with us, but they've got their own businesses to run, right? But where we sort of found a happy landing is the really top-tier installers that are doing really good jobs and trying to sell their systems. They're interested in selling panels, right? What they can't do is add an electricity bundle to it. So we sort of say, look, the two of us, if we partner together, you can give the customer, you know, at the moment, that's really cool. You're getting three to five year payback on your solar system, but we're also locking in your energy rates for three to five years. So the costs are known. There's like, and they love that, right? Because they can go out. There's the unknown as well. You know, we know that the solar system can save you this money, but every year the energy price goes up. So we're saying, well, let's get rid of that. Let's just lock in the energy rate for three years and the, all the costs are known. So then the savings and the payback to the customer becomes really clear. And there's a lot of, lot of trust established with that. So that's a big key. Partnerships can fall apart. You've both got to, got to bring something to it. So we'll give you a three-year energy deal, but you have to make sure that you're putting in a quality system to our standard and making sure that it's installed and the service and warranties are upheld. I think the jury's out. There's, there's definitely a big run on people trying to buy up installers at the moment. There's definitely a skills shortage off the back of COVID. There'll be winners and losers out of that. You know, I think that to build up a quality internal fleet is going to take years. So certainly partnership or acquisition are ways to get there quicker. But, you know, with everything 
in that space, you need to make sure you're not just buying up vaporware. And what are you buying if you buy a, a solar installation business? Are you buying another bunch of outsourced contracts or are you actually buying, you know, what are you buying? So that's definitely a big issue. I think, you know, the next couple of years you'll see everyone fighting over quality installers and trying to monopolise that a little bit to their advantage. Yeah, so we're, we're certainly have a look, having a look at that space and, and where we think we need to play there. It's really interesting because like, I find that like someone, and I've heard this in various, put to me various ways, Andrew, it's like good ideas are cheap, but well-executed ideas are very expensive. It's this idea that right, like implementation is everything, right? And like, how do you actually execute on that idea? And to see you doing it and balancing that act as you grow is like credit to you to do that. Maybe while we're on the topic of culture, I've got a couple more questions for you. But one of the ones that I realized when I was just like surfing the the website and just having a look around is like, there's a lot of job openings, you guys are scaling and everything like that. Is can you talk about like the the benefits and how you've thought about like recruiting? Uh, whether it's like the the work life balance that you can offer people and how that maybe is changing through time, maybe can, compared to when you first got into it and you were first recruiting, how that's changed over time, and in particular like the work life balance that people get from remote work and whether that the, the good and bad of that, I guess. Yeah, sure. I think um, I've struggled with it personally. I know our employees have. I know our shareholders have. I think you know for executives the last three years as you you know you, know, you talk to them it's been really tough because there's no no blueprint for this a lot of stuff was happening like if you think i, I think back to we sort of be exhausted when we think back about the journey because i mean a startup's hard enough it is but if you're starting up in the middle of covid you know, got that pandemic you got the lockdown that leads to working from home when prior to that we had the fires and then we had the floods and of course you know you say well how's that impact your business well of course if you know if, if people are managing their, their, their survival, you know, and their houses are flooded. The last thing they want is someone ringing up and say, would you like a solar panel on your roof? Well, they say, mate, I'm, I'm busy trying to work out if my house is going to be there tomorrow or not. So we've had the last three years for all businesses in Australia, it's been pretty stressful. And then on top of that, last year we had the Ukraine war and then the energy crisis, which saw the energy market fall apart. We saw nine retailers go out of business last year like that. So they're high stakes games where there's a lot of money involved and it's uh, energy is a very volatile commodity and you can go out of business literally overnight if you get it wrong. So there's enough going on in the external environment and then you've sort of, you're have sort trying to build a business and our business model, it's not some of them we're making up as we go along because we're, we're trying to work out what works and what doesn't with the consumer feedback and the products that we're building have never been built before and we're building that on technology that hasn't existed before. So you start to get to a point where without the shareholders that we've got, um, and the vision that they've got because they really want to push through this, I think it would have been very difficult for us. But culturally, we've gone through the ringer on it. It's, it's been, you never get it right. The tech guys all wanted to stay home right from day one. This is what they, you know, that was their dream. Let me sit in my bunker and tap away on my computer. I never want to see anyone. I can talk on Skype to everyone and this is just perfect, sitting there eating their popcorn. They were so keen to get home and that was just, you know, no problem. The sales and marketing types want to come in and interact. They want to, you know, want to talk about it, want to whiteboard things. They didn't want to be at home. They were starting to get a little bit depressed. Call centre people couldn't communicate with each other. How do I got an angry customer on the phone? Can you take it? How do I manage that? So depending on your business model, there was no uniform rule that would work that everyone would be happy with. It was just an impossible, you know, even right down to should it be one day at home, two days at work, you just couldn't get it right. And so we just kept doing surveys, like it's a silly thing. We just kept going, how do you feel about that? Did that work? You know, what, what should we try? And, da, da, da. and look, and eventually we just realised that the only way to deal with this is just to, just to not have any rules. And so the office is there, the desks are there, they're all hot desks. 
depending on what works for you, come in, book a desk or stay home. But we do realise now that the people that are staying home all the time, I think, start to suffer. They start to become a little bit internalised. They don't get the camaraderie and interaction. They start to feel a little bit distanced from the from the from the business. So we're moving now towards making the office. We've just ripped out a whole heap of desks and we're putting in more offices and making it more of a place to come and collaborate. So people are coming in to have a beer or have lunch and actually just say, "Hey, that's right, haven't seen you for a while." That's becoming a meeting place. But there's a there's a lot of trust involved in that. I think we manage it okay because we're still a very small business. I don't know how you do that at scale. I think if you're getting getting much beyond the sort of size that we are now, I think it becomes increasingly harder to to make that all work. So people are uh, you know getting the freedom that they want, but the business is getting the engagement that they need. It's it's a really tough one. You know, I don't think there's there isn't a blueprint for this one that says this is right. I think the, the key is you've got to be flexible enough just to go with it and keep trying different things and, and just be honest with your employees and, and let them come back to you and, and tell you how they're feeling. You know, And, again, that's easier with a small business. Right? It's an easier with a small business. How many employees do you have? Yeah, so we're, we're just over 50 now, but that's across retail, power generation, utility-scale battery headquarters. So... We're overstaffed for a retail business of that size, but again, we're front-ending it because we're, you know, we're building two solar farms, we're building a couple of really large-scale batteries. Um, we'll, we'll probably be about eighty by the end of the by the end of the year. Yeah. So, I'm just curious. There's a few things you touched on there. One of them is like the shareholders' support, and I think that's the role of like the managing director or founder if you're in that situation. Even if you're in a micro business, how important that is. So, if you take on external money, it's just to know the motivation of whoever you're getting money from. I see that all the time. And sometimes that's the blessing or it's the biggest curse, depending on where you go for that cash. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> you touched on surveys there. I'm curious, how often did you do those? Like, did you really want your finger on the pulse like every couple of weeks or did you, like, how often did you check in? Oh, uh, when the grumblings became loud, like we don't have, we don't run a HR department. You know, it's the every, every leader's job to sort of, manage their team but you'd get to a point where you could hear there was dissatisfaction over a beer or something and we'd say well let's run a survey and you know we'd just do it on survey monkey very quickly and then the, the key to that was actually to do something off the back of it right yeah to let them know that it's actually some action yeah this is what we heard this is what we're going to try let's give it a try we trust you you trust us um, and the interesting one with the, with the working from home was we said look you know we don't want everyone to be at home on a monday or a friday we want some people there because otherwise the office space doesn't work out so we're trusting you to do that. So, you know, we don't want to put a roster out. Just make sure that some of you come in on a Friday at some point like that. That's up to you. We'll make it work, you know. And that's that's worked pretty well, I think. It's a big leap from where we've come from. If you think back to wearing suits and ties and, you know, nine to five, it's, it's transformational. And I think people, especially control freaks, I guess, would be uh, struggling with that. I think we're, we're pretty easy going. I think the startup environment allows you to be a little bit more relaxed with that. I'm not saying it's perfect. We'll just keep trying and just keep talking to them. But once a quarter to answer your question easily, sometimes more than that, depending on the urgency of the issues. Have you ever tried, it's very common in tech language, like an all hands, like we all come together and you give people an excuse to come together? Like have you, do you yeah, do those yeah, or do yeah. you try with those? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we have what's called a town hall meeting. One of the one of the, one of the great things about being owned by a South Korean company is they do the uh, Korean barbecue chicken very well. So that, <laughs> that gets me in. No, no look, I'm, I must admit that's been one of the 
one of the surprising things that's been most enjoyable is bringing the South Korean expats together with the uh, the local team here and the language differences, the cultural differences. And it was very formal to start with, as it can be. So, we were, you know, calling everyone Mr. Kim and all this sort of stuff. And it was all very formal. And and then as the trust became, you know, as people get to know each other, regardless of, you know, cultural backgrounds, it just became a little bit looser, a little bit looser. And then we're sort of now we're casual clothes. We're working from home and we have our town hall meetings and we got the VB cans there with the Korean barbecue chicken and the soju. So it's actually really good. It's been a lot of fun learning about each other's, you know, different cultures. We have, you know, a good team of expats over here. They certainly love Australia. I think it's been a really interesting cultural journey just seeing that that play out. Right, right, right up to how do you get approvals at headquarters and things like that when you're sometimes in the early days I'd be writing business cases and they'd have to be fully translated into Korean before they could go up. Or I'd be in management interviews where there'd have to be a, a translator. So it's like <laughs> it's fun, actually. Yeah. Bit of fun. Yeah. Well, that's like that's fascinating. Just how we don't think about that a lot of the times if we're just running a local business. Like the communication is like can be lost through translation, right? Like the interpretation and the perception. You as a leader is like that's your tool, right? Your tool is like leadership perception and and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. And look, just on that, I've been very fortunate that that, that my manager, Taehong Kim, he'd worked in Texas and in Germany. He has a really good understanding that you need to understand the local culture to make these businesses work. And he and I were lucky enough to sort of form an understanding of the nuance of language. And in the early days, we had a young guy here was a Korean guy, but he was very, very fluent on the nuance of the English language. And often we'd have him in the meeting because quite often you'd come out thinking you'd said you'd agreed what was going to happen, but have a very different understanding of that. And with this guy in the room, he would understand, no, you've missed the point. You've missed the, you've missed the subtlety of what was said there. This is a very different thing. And that was very useful in the early days. And, look, you know, some of the, some of the people that have left this organisation at senior levels didn't have the patience to understand that nuance and just got frustrated with the outcome. And I think you've got to go into this with an open mind to try and listen and understand the cultural differences, respect them, and then say, well, are we really sure that we've left the room with the same understanding of what needs to be done? Because it's very, you've hit on a very good point. So often we'd walk out and go, no, I thought you said that. What are you doing that for? Very different. Yeah, and that's the more I go on with my own business journey and discoveries, like the more I realise as leaders in businesses, basically what you have is the example, right? You have to set the example in every way, the way you communicate, the way you present, your attitude on certain philosophical points or principles for business. It's so important. And so the complexity of managing that through time zones or remote or languages, you've got it all. So you've kind of got, you've got it all sandwiched into one. I um, fully appreciate that you're a very busy man. So uh, I've got one final question, which I did send through in advance. And I asked you for three things that you kind of wish you knew about business five years ago, but it doesn't have to be prescriptive. Like if you could leave us with even one thing from this conversation, I mean, I've got a few, but one thing that you just wish you knew sooner when you started business and you've been doing this for a long time. So I'm sure there are multiple lessons, but anything would be great. One thing. I think my, my, my I guess my learning is that high performers will find you and you should nurture them. I spent a lot of my career trying to identify talent and, and convert them into high performers, but it's got to come from within. And, and usually the, the best performers in a team, they're, they're, they self-nominate. You see them and then you look after them. You can spend a lot of time 
identifying talent and, and investing in it. You know, if you use the footy analogy, this guy's got all the skills but not the right attitude or leadership behaviours. You waste an awful lot of time trying to get people that to appear to have it on paper but can't convert it on the field. And so I spend a lot less time now looking for who the next leaders are because they, they tend to self-nominate, if you know what I mean. And they're the ones you want to um, invest your time and energy into. Do you do that with recruiting as well? So this is fascinating to me because someone always told me that don't hire the person that could be the best, hire the person who is the best. Does that make sense? So to hire the person you know is the right one now, forget about if they might leave you in 12 or 24 months, get the best person right now. I don't know if that if you can, do you factor that into your hiring process? I go for team first. I go for the ability to hold a conversation. I go for their leadership values, their behaviours. That's what I'm observing. A lot of people don't realise I'm not really interested in their talent. I'm interested in how they interact with the rest of the team, first and foremost. And then it's an, you know I'd expect that they've applied for that job. They should have the skills that we've asked them for. But most of the time I'm viewing people based on how they interact with people, how they conduct themselves in the office, whether they show leadership, those types of things. Those are the things that I think make, make all the difference because... If they haven't got that, then you spend all your time sorting out team issues and politics created by by people who just don't don't seem to, to gel. So I've swung the other way. It's less about skill for me now. It's more about team fit, leadership behaviours, and just generally being a nice person to work with. Yeah, like passion over pedigree. I love it. Okay, great. So if people want to find out more about Nectar or even about yourself, mate, it's the best place to go to the website. Are you active on like any of the, the channels like LinkedIn or anywhere like that? Do you... Yeah, do people reach out to you often? Yeah, I was. I wasn't until about two weeks ago. I decided to have a spell from LinkedIn because I, I was just getting bomb, bombarded with <laughs> just just getting too ridiculous. So I've taken a little bit of a hiatus there. But, uh, yeah, the, the Nectar LinkedIn site is a good place to find out more. And obviously the Nectar website, N-E-C-T-R, nectar.com.au. But, again, look, I, I'm sort of – I'd rather let the brand speak for itself. I, I think there's a lot of CEOs out there that make the brand about them. I'm not one of those. I think the brand's nectar and, you know, hopefully we've created a brand that'll exist long after long after I'm gone and um, that's the key. Yeah, absolutely. I'll put the link in the show notes. And just so I can confirm my understanding, just one final thing before we go to leave listeners with as well. So people can get solar panels, get the batteries and the energy all locked in. But this is not, a, I'm not paid to say this. I'm just asking the question because I haven't come across this before. So you can get all of that wrapped up in one through nectar. Yeah, through one monthly payment. Yeah, that's right. Over five years. So that's it. One-stop shop for solar battery and electricity. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Okay, great. Well, I love that. Well, Andrew, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to join me on the show today. Thanks, Owen. It's been great. Thanks for the time. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Business Podcast. I think this series is best served with my free business course on RASC education. My free course includes all of my notes, templates, employment guides, legal documents, marketing strategies, software recommendation, and ideas for starting and running a small business. If you're a small business owner or an expert like an accountant, 
lawyer, investor, or entrepreneur, I want to hear from you. I'm not 100% sure what we're going to do with this podcast series, so I'm looking for sponsors as well as potential co-hosts, and of course, I'm eager to invest in businesses run by talented people. If you're looking for a supporter or advisor, a silent partner, or even an investor to support your growth, I can help. Please contact me via the RASC website. Finally, if this podcast or the course helps you, I only ask that you please help me by sharing it with one friend, colleague, or family member who runs a business. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.